Hey, good morning, 11 o'clock service, how we doing? Hey, it is good to be with you this morning. Whether you're joining us here at the Worship Center or joining us over the ridge, we're glad to have you here at Rocky Peak. I gotta ask before I start off, Dodger fans, how are your hearts and nerves after what happened? They kept you going for a while. Non-Dodger fans at the end of service, we've got a prayer and encouragement corner where we can send you to be able to pray for us. Hey, well, if you're here joining us for the first time in either venue, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. My name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we're going to jump and continue our series this morning. So to do that, if you would, open up those programs you got on your way in. Inside, there is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to be able to help you follow along. Also, it's a great tool to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get started. Father, we are here this morning because we are hungry. Father, we are hungry to know more of you, more of your character, more of your power, more of your love, more of your priorities. We are hungry to know more of who we are in light of who you are, who you have called us to be, who you are transforming us to be. Father, we want to know more of you so that we can leave this place and be a light in a dark world. As last week we talked about being salt, being light. Jesus, that is our call as all believers, and we want to do that. As today we open up your precious word, which is living, which is active, which transforms us. We as your church say, speak, for we are listening. Speak, for we are ready to obey. Speak for we are ready to be transformed by the words of Jesus. And so as I often pray, Father, as I pray that I as the communicator, I pray that I become much, much less. I pray that you as our almighty Father, as our creator and king, whose words are what truly resurrect us, I pray that you become much, much more this morning. And we commit this time to you in your son's name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we are going to be continuing the series we kicked off last week called Unfiltered, Discovering a Higher Calling. Now, this series is actually the third mini-series, or the third season, if you will, in a longer study in one of the earliest and most important biographies in the life and teaching of Jesus, the Gospel according to Matthew, which is the first book in the second half of our Bible, the New Testament. Now, Overall, with Unfiltered, why we're doing this is that when it comes to Jesus, it seems that so many of us view Jesus through a series of filters, whether they're cultural filters or experiential filters. But what happens is when we place these filters on Jesus, they keep us from seeing who he really was, what he really said, and they keep us from understanding what it truly means to follow after Jesus. So the goal of this series is to go back to the first century using the Gospel of Matthew and to see an unfiltered image of Jesus and then understand what it truly means to follow after him. Now, in this season, what we're doing is we're jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount. In a previous series, we looked at the beginning of it, the Beatitude, and now we're really getting into the heart and soul of this. Now, let's orient ourselves. Jesus is in the northern part of Israel in a region called the Galilee. Large crowds have come to hear him, and out of those large crowds, his followers, his disciples, not just the 12, but anybody who would say, yes, I'm coming under the leadership of Jesus, have come out, and he is teaching and talking directly to them. And so what he is doing is he is teaching this epic claim that the long-awaited kingdom of God in which the Messiah would come and break into our time and space, in which the Messiah would come 
to right the wrongs due to sin, that that kingdom in that era is now here in the person of Jesus. And that to be an inhabitant in the new kingdom of God does not require us the way we are, but it requires a new type of person. And as Jesus teaches through the sermon, he paints a clear picture of what a transformed person looks like. And so today, specifically, the topic on the table is the written word of God, scripture in the Bible. And so what we're going to see through the teaching of Jesus and through his model is as followers of Jesus, what is our relationship with the word of God? How do we view it and how do we value it? So there in your note sheet, if you're following along, you got a section titled, Setting the Record Straight. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 17. Now, in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now let's stop right there. There's a lot to unpack there, and that sets the foundation for the rest of our teaching today. So the first thing I want you to do is I want you to underline or highlight two key words in that passage. The first word is abolish. Now in the Greek, that is a very strong word. It paints a picture of completely destroying or doing away with a building or an institution. Now, the second word I want you to underline or highlight is the word fulfill. So let's unpack this a little bit. What Jesus is doing is he is responding to an accusation that the religious leadership at the time, what I call the religious establishment, will make many times towards Jesus and towards his followers and movement, and that's this, that Jesus and his movement does not respect the authority of the word of God that he is teaching and leading people to abandon and leave behind the written word of God and all that it teaches us to do. Now, you need to understand that to a first century Jewish audience, this was not merely a big deal accusation. This was actually a horrifying accusation. And to really understand why and to understand why Jesus is addressing this, we need to dig into the context and try to emotionally connect with a first century Jewish audience. And so to do that, let's talk a little bit about what the law actually is. Now, in a Jewish context, the law is referring to the first five books of the Bible, the G Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, those are the beginning of what we now call the Old Testament, but in a Jewish tradition, that's the beginning of the Holy Hebrew Scriptures. Now, the law also is called the Torah. It also goes by the Pentateuch or the books of Moses because Moses was the author of them. And within the law, you contained a lot of rich history. In the law, we see the account of creation as how God as a brilliant creator created our world and the universe we live in. Through the account of creation, we see that we as human beings, man and women, were the crescendo, the main event of his creation. Also within the law, we see what happened to our relationship with God and how that was lost due to sin. When we chose sin, that separated us from a holy God. But in the law as well, we see that rather than leave us to die in our sin, that God enacts this big rescue plan for all of his people. 
With that, in the law, it contains, God, contains God's covenant with Abraham, how he will make a nation, the nation of Israel, and through that nation, God will redeem the world. Within the law as well, we see the story of God releasing his people from captivity in Egypt through Moses and through them establishing the nation of Israel. With that, in the law, we see commands for how do people of God now live because they didn't have a frame of reference before that. One of the most popular examples of that is the the Ten Commandments. So you need to understand the importance of the law that in Jewish culture, when you went to synagogue, the main event, as I put it, was the oral reading and teaching of the law, of those first five books. But the law wasn't just important for their faith, the law regulated every stream of Jewish life. In fact, I like how one scholar put it, the law completely defined the identity of the Jewish people. So with that being with that context, do you understand the strategy that Jesus is using to address this issue? Because what's going to happen as Jesus continues his ministry, he is going to teach and model and say some radical things. He is going to come in contact, conflict often with the religious leadership at the time. And so as Jesus in his ministry often ministered to a primarily Jewish audience, as Matthew, his original audience is a primarily, his original audience for his gospel was originally a primarily Jewish audience, it's important to hit the question early on, what is Jesus' view and relationship to the written word of God? And what we're going to see through the words of Jesus is an immense value and reverence, not just for the law, but did you notice in verse 17, he says the law and the prophets, which is a way of saying the entire Old Testament. So let's go back to verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now that is a very unique word. Because it's a very different statement than saying, I have come simply to obey the law, or I have come to respect the law. In fact, in the original language, him saying, I have come, has got a sense of authority as if I have been sent by God to fulfill the law. And so what Jesus is saying by using the word fulfill is he's doing two key things. One, he is affirming authority. He is affirming the authority of the written word of God, but also he is affirming his authority as God's Messiah. And then he's doing a second thing, which is something we're going to see him often do throughout his ministry. He is putting the law, he is putting the Old Testament back in the context that God intended. Now let me ask you this question rhetorically. Have you ever been taken out of context? Has that resulted in strife and conflict in any type of relationship? And think about what happens when we get taken out of context. Sometimes somebody uses words that we didn't use, but it's been my experience that often when we're taken out of context, they're using the words we said, but what they're just obscuring or not showing is the intended meaning behind it. See, what Jesus is addressing is that the written word of God at this point in history has been taken out of context. That the word that the religious leaders and establishment are teaching is abandoning the context that God had intended. So it raises an important question, what is the context of the Old Testament? What is the context of the Hebrew Scriptures? And the way I sum it up is in one word, 
restoration. The foundation and the heart of the Old Testament, you can make this argument for the entirety of scriptures, but for our focus, the foundation and heart and the context of the Old Testament is restoration, is God restoring relationship to his creation, restoring our relationship with him and restoring our relationship with one another. Something we talked about several weeks ago in one of the services that in the Old Testament, it uses the word shalom a return to peace and harmony in our relationships. And when you look at the Old Testament, we see this context in some key ways. So I mentioned earlier, one of the most famous and popular examples of the Old Testament is the Ten Commandments. And it can be easy to look at those Ten Commandments and see them as simply rules. But the reality is they shine a clear light into the context of restoration. If you look at the commandments that refer to our relationship with God, take one of the commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. The meaning of that commandment is we will no longer bend the knee to idols. We will no longer bend the knees to lies and falsehood because that just leads to death, destruction, and damnation. That by choosing to have one focus on the one true God, that is the restoration of relationship. And then if you look at the example of the commandments of how we're to relate with other people, commandments such as do not lie, do not steal, it's not because they're, quote, good rules to follow, it's because they restore relationship, because the opposite destroys relationship. If I were to be inauthentic with you, if I were to steal from you, if I were to covet what you have, what it's doing is it's creating disunity and it's creating barriers. So there's one example of the context of the Old Testament being restoration. Another example that we see in the Old Testament is that restoration is not something we can accomplish on our own. Specifically looking at the law, those first five books, there are 613 commands to follow. And what these commands show us is they show us the depth and gravity of sin. That because of my sin, my relationship with God has been destroyed, has been broken. And the reality is that if I want to be holy in God's sight, I need to follow all of these commandments and it is impossible. And so within context, what these commands are showing is that to be restored, we're not going to be able to do it on our own power, but we're going to need God himself to restore us. And that leads to a third key aspect we see in the Old Testament of this theme of restoration, of future restoration that will come with Messiah. That God's chosen will come specifically to restore his creation, to restore his people, to right what was wrong, to resurrect us, to establish a kingdom where now we have, we have right standing because of the work of Jesus See, what's amazing is when we look at the Old Testament in context, it was not intended to be static. The Old Testament was not intended to be God's final word to his people, but it was showing us God's heart of restoration, and it was pointing forward to a restoration which would one day come in Jesus. And so as King Jesus is saying that kingdom is here, what he is saying is that everything the Old Testament was pointing towards is now here. Restoration is now here. Now, that's the context. So, what were the religious leaders teaching? What they had done is they had taken that beautiful context and they had turned it into a legalistic nightmare. It became less about God's big picture. It became less about God's work in our lives. And what happened was pride got involved. 
And if you just examine your own life like I do in mine, often the greatest downfalls and the destructions, the things that distort the most beautiful things in my life always begin with pride. And so it became about these rules. And rather than seeing that I need the Lord to help me live out these commands, it became, hey, if I follow these rules, that makes me kind of good. If I follow these rules, that makes me holy and I'm doing this on my own. And you know what? That makes me better than other people. It became less about God changing the inside and all about how I look on the outside. If I look religious, if I say the right things, if I go to the right place on Sunday morning, if I hold the right book in my hand, then it doesn't matter that my heart and my internal is gross and dark and disgusting. In fact, it got so distorted that they began adding. They felt that, hey, God's words didn't go far enough. They're not conservative enough. So at the time of Jesus, they had many oral laws and oral traditions that were weighted as much, if at times not more, than Scripture itself. It had turned into a legalistic nightmare. And so often what Jesus does in his teaching is he takes the focus off the legalism and he, shows, he shines a bright light back into context of the, the context of the word that originally God had. And so when Jesus says that he is fulfilling the word, he is not casting doubt on the authority of scripture. He is not throwing anything away of what scripture said, but what he is doing is he is confirming the truth that the scripture was pointing towards, and he is confirming the authority of scripture. And it is the foundation of everything Jesus will do in his ministry. And so for us as believers today, as a quick sidebar, it's so important that we don't fall into this trap where we don't value the Old Testament. Sometimes we think, well, the parts with Jesus, that's the part we need to value and go in. All of Scripture paints this beautiful picture. And as Jesus valued the Old Testament, so as his followers, we are as well. And so with that, what Jesus is going to do in the next few verses is he's going to make very clear his value and reverence for the written word. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So a couple things I want to highlight there. First of all, would you underline the phrase that he began with, for truly I tell you. This is a very unique phrase that Jesus uses often. In fact, Matthew's gospel is going to record Jesus saying this over 30 times. And Jesus often says this, in the, says this before he hits a very foundation and a transformational teaching. Now, in the Greek, the word truly is the same word that we would, write, we would translate as amen. Now, when we say amen, we don't say it because it's a cute religious word and it's a way to end prayers. Amen is a petition and a declaration. We say amen because we are saying, God, make it so. But another thing, way we use amen is to declare that it is God's truth. And so what's powerful about the statement is when he says, for truly I tell you, what he's saying is, it is God's truth that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so now that Jesus is here, his scripture is still pointing forward. There will be one day when Christ returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. But until that day comes, the entirety of the word will always be significant and will always have authority. And then he continues, verse 19. Therefore, anyone, now think about this, he's talking to his followers. He's talking to us. 
So take this personally. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot of strong statements there. Let's take this one at a time. So the first one is teaches them. Now, for many of us as Christ followers, we probably have not had an experience in which we have verbally told someone the word of God doesn't matter. Hey, you know what you should do? Go to church, go in life group, but the Bible isn't important. We shouldn't do that. And all of us would say, well, I've never done that verbally, but Jesus is asking us to look deeper. And maybe we've never done that verbally, but I also know that I've been guilty of sending that unspoken message. Do you realize that every decision you make in your life teaches something to people around you? Do you realize that what you value, what you prioritize, what your goals are, what your vision for your life, that sends a message to your coworkers, your friends, your family about what's important and what's not? And so in this teaching, Jesus is asking us to examine when it comes to the Bible, what message is our lives sending? Are our lives sending a message that we value the Word of God? Or are our lives sending a message that the Word of God is not a priority and is optional? Let me give you an example as a parent. See, I'm raising my kids to have a high value of the Word of God, and I can tell them that I value that, but if they never see me modeling that in my life, if they never see me interacting with the Word, then unspokenly I'm sending a message that, okay, we say it's important, but it's really not and then Jesus goes on to say the importance of what this does in the eyes of God, and he uses the words least and great. Now, let's define these terms because they're defined differently than how we would. See, when we look at least and great, we would probably translate that as winners and losers, as better than, as less than. But that is not how Jesus is translating this. See, when he's referring to his followers as being less or great, when it comes to being great, it means that you are regularly experiencing transformation. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you're listening it means that you're following. It means that you are regularly experiencing what God has for you. And that may not be monetary provisions. That may not be money falling out of the sky. That may not be an answer to every problem you have. But you know you're walking in the presence of God. And that is the best life possible. And then the least of these is what Michael would say, the people whose vision for their life is too small who are the C's get degrees type of Christ followers. I want to do the bare minimum, and that's it. And so Jesus' vision for our lives is to live great lives, and we do that by following his example, by seeing the word as what it is. Now, one thing that I also need to address in this passage is this passage can also cause a little bit of confusion. Because the question comes, he's saying, you're great if you don't abandon even the least of these commands. And so for us in the Western world in 2017, as a primarily non-Jewish audience, the question becomes, does that mean that we should still be living under the Old Testament laws, the 613 commands and everything else? See, when we open up the Old Testament, we see that the laws were in different categories. There was moral laws, which we do still follow. There were civic and situational national laws. There were ceremonial laws. And so those governed very specific things. 
And so the question is, if we're to live under that, there were pretty strict restrictions on what our hair could look like, what our beard could look like. There were restrictions and specific things on how to farm and how to be an agricultural community. There were restrictions on the Sabbath about what was considered work, that we couldn't walk this many ways or we couldn't do this on the Sabbath. And what seems even more confusing is that in the life of Jesus, he seems to break some of these laws. And when he's called on it, he basically goes, as he has the right to, I'm Jesus. I know what I'm doing. And so how do we address this? And the way I address this is I go back to the context and I go back to the big picture of what we've been talking about. See, the message of Jesus is that the Old Testament will always be the authoritative word of God. Now, with that, the Old Testament was pointing forward. And now that Jesus has come and through his death and resurrection, the role of the Old Testament will not be the same as it once was. And who is going to model and teach us in terms of what do we follow, what not, how do we remain focused on the big picture? Jesus himself. And in fact, he's going to do that a lot through the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to do that a lot through his life in the Gospels. So that's how we would go ahead and address that question. But what I don't want you to miss in these two verses is that what Jesus is saying is that as followers of Christ, his expectation is that we would be people who develop a deep value and reverence for the word as he has. And then he closes with this. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, righteousness is a big word and a big concept and an important one for us to understand as Christ followers. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to leave this for now, and next week Michael's going to be up here, and he's going to do a part two of this, of this section of Scripture, where he's going to go back to this section and specifically deal with the issue of righteousness and what does that look like. So that's our passage for this morning. And so what I want to do with the time we have left is I want to unpack what that means for us as Christ followers. Jesus' value and affirmation of the word, what's the big picture truth we take away from that, and then out of that, the over flow, what are the implications for our lives? So if you follow along your note sheet, you got a section titled, Jesus and the Word, the Big Picture. And your fill-in is this, sharing Jesus' value of the Word transforms us. Sharing Jesus' value of the Word transforms us. So let me go back just a few weeks ago in the previous series we were in, the series 40, which was the thesis of the series, was God's vision for our lives is one of transformation. God's vision is not a small vision. And sometimes as Christ followers or as, quote, religious people, what happens is our vision for our lives, our vision of what it looks like to follow after God is too small. One example is that often our vision for our lives is that God makes us a slightly better version of who we were before. Kind of like a 2.0 version that now that I have God in my life, I go to church most weekends. Now that I have God in my life, I get to go to heaven after I die. And now that I have God in my life, I curse a little bit less. I don't stop cursing because it's the World Series and I need to be able to use some of those words. But I curse a little bit less. And for many of us, that's what we take it to mean to follow after Jesus. 
And again, when we look at the context of Scripture, that is not God's vision for our lives. God's vision for our lives is to change us, transform us into completely new people. So God's vision for my life was not to make me a slightly better version of Dre, was, but to change me completely from the inside out to make me now a reflection of his son Jesus in every area of my life. And you know what's beautiful about this? Is that God takes us as broken, sinful people. He resurrects our hearts and changes us from the inside out. And he calls us to be like Jesus, not because we're going to fail at this, but because he gives us his spirit and he gives us the tools to not only do that, but to do it well to succeed and thrive. That is God's vision for our life. Now, there's many aspects of our lives that are transformed by Jesus, but one of the key ones is that when we give our lives to Jesus, he begins to realign our passions to mirror and model what God's passions are. So, for example, as Christ followers, we begin to see that our hearts start breaking for what breaks the heart of God. We also see that as Christ followers, our hearts start being filled with joy and passion for what God values and he has passion for. And so that leads me to our topic today. We see God's reverence and his value for his written word. Do you realize that to Jesus, the written word of God, the scripture, is not merely a book? It is not something to adorn or collect dust on a bookshelf. It is not something that is nice to have and is nice to get to once in a while and it is an option, it is option. But the reality is the model of Jesus is that he values God's word because it is a source of transformation. The word is unlike any other written word in our world because it is the only word that can change our lives. And if you think about it, for many Christ followers, this makes perfect sense. Because when we think about our own life and our own growth, when we think about times in which we felt like our growth has slowed down, when we think about times in which we felt our growth has been stunted or stopped altogether, we think of those times in which we realize, I don't feel or hear or experience God like I once did. I don't feel a closeness with God. It's hard to walk, it's hard to walk with Him. I don't feel as if I'm being transformed. And while there's many factors that affect that, often one of the common denominators is we are not valuing the Word of God. Because when we don't value it, we don't spend time with it. If the word of God is our source of transformation and we walk away from it as Christ followers, no wonder we're not experiencing transformation. See, Jesus valued the word because it was the source of God's transformation. Now hear me very, very clearly. My intent in bringing this out is not to guilt and shame. I'm not standing up here wagging a finger in your face going, that is why you are stagnant. That is why you are not growing up. See, what I'm here is we need to address truth, but at the same time, we need to understand the hope in the words of Jesus that he teaches this to give all of us, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, no matter what our relationship with his word is, to give all of us a fresh beginning, a new start. And the beauty is Christ followers we have his Holy Spirit inside of us who's going to lead us to this. If we're going to transform how we value and revere the word of God, it is going to be happened through the leading of the spirit that lives in you. And so with that, what I want to do 
is I want to unpack three practical steps. If we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to transform our value and our reverence for the Word of God, then there's three areas where we need to submit to His leadership. And these three areas can all be summed up with one word, interaction. We need to actually interact with the Word of God in different ways. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Transforming Our View. And the first step, the first fill-in is this, know the Word. know the word. We need to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to teach us what is actually inside the Bible. What is in there cover to cover? I remember in my own life when I had heard about the Bible and people talking about it, I had this image that cover to cover all the Bible is, is just lists of rules just hundreds of pages of rules. And I remember the first time somebody showed me that there was narrative in there, it kind of blew my mind because I never guessed or assumed that that would have been in the Bible. See, what's amazing about this is there's many Christ followers that for whatever reason, we don't really know what's in the Bible, let alone how to interpret it. And so when I say know the word, I want you to write down two key words of what I mean. The first word is content. Just what is it? What does it say? What are the stories? What are the commands in it? And the second word is context. How do we properly interpret it and begin to remove filters? As we talk about context is king because one, one of the traps we fall into is we often try to interpret the Bible through our context, meaning we assume that the Bible takes place in Simi Valley or in the United States. So for example, in Luke chapter two, which is the birth, the Christmas story of Jesus, we think of there's no room at the inn, he was born in a manger, and for many of us, we think of there's no room at the, Hollywood, at the Holiday Inn in Bethlehem, that he was born in one of these Midwest red barns and all that, and understand, this is a Middle Eastern event. It's a very different context. And when we look at both, what does it say and what does it mean? It becomes getting rich. But if we want to know the word of God, we need to address the key roadblocks that keep us from being in the word of God. Now, as I dig a little bit deeper into my own life, for many of us, we would probably say, well, the reason I don't spend time with God's word is time. I don't have the time. My life is busy, there's so much to do, I wouldn't know where I would find another 10, 15 minutes. And what I've realized in my own life is I can say time, but the truth is that's not the real reason. That's the reason I hide behind, but there's a root that goes deeper. And for many of these, many people, including myself, what I have found when I have dug deeper is the roadblock is not time, but it's actually intimidation. Because when I open up the Bible, I feel like I don't understand it. I feel like I don't know where to start. I feel like I'm not mature enough to be able to understand this. And if it was the opposite, I would probably make the time. Let me illustrate this feeling uh, using a story from me growing up. So I grew up, like a lot of you here, in a pre-internet world, meaning I was well into being 18 years old before we had a computer that had internet access in my house. And so specifically in a pre-Google and Wikipedia world, if you needed to learn or look something up and you weren't in school, you had two options. One, you would physically go to a library and you would try to navigate the nightmare that is the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> or the other option was that your family owned a set of encyclopedias. 
Let me ask you in here, did anybody own encyclopedias at any point? Dude, that's a lot of you. That's crazy. I own the encyclopedia. My family had the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, think of Wikipedia in book form. So they were these heavy, heavy books that were alphabetized. They had a volume in A, and they just went alphabetically and had these different references. And they looked very solemn and somber. They almost looked like Bibles, right? As the books were in there, they cost a fortune. I never understood how families afforded them, and they took up two-thirds of your living room. But I gotta tell you, as a kid, as a kid who loved to read, I loved my encyclopedia. I would grab volumes and just start, let's see what's happening in the world of V today, and start reading as we go in. <laughs> and what you could also do with your encyclopedia is you could buy supplementary sets. So one day, my dad came home and he had bought a supplementary set in sciences. And so each of the volumes focused on a different discipline of science, astronomy, biology, and so on. And I was really, really excited. See, at this point in my young life, my dream was to be a scientist. I loved and I still do love science, but cards on the table, I really wanted to be a scientist because I wanted to build a working version of the DeLorean time machine from Back to the Future. <laughs> And in my head, I remember going, well, if I want to be a scientist, I need to learn science, and I can do that by reading the encyclopedia. So I remember one day, I'm going to school, and I take two volumes, chemistry and physics, and I put them in my backpack, and I go to school. And at lunch, instead of going to play with my friends, I find a quiet place, I pull it out, and I'm excited. I'm going to do some book learning today. I opened it up, and immediately, I found myself so royally confused. I remember sitting there going, well, maybe it's just this one page, flip, flip, flip. Well, maybe it's just this one chapter, flip, flip, flip. Well, maybe I'm holding it upside down. Maybe if, maybe if I go far away, well, maybe it's just this one book. And then I pulled the other one out, and it was the same thing. Now, for us as adults, we can understand you were a kid who was trying to understand some pretty heavy concepts. No wonder you weren't getting it. But emotionally, as a kid, that's not how I understood it. As a kid, how I understood it was, I don't understand this because I'm too stupid. And so I remember closing those books, putting them back in my backpack and not going back to them. And I remember that my pursuit of being a scientist ended in that moment. Because to me, I'm too stupid to know how to do this. And the reason why I share this is for many of us, that's the intimidation we feel when it comes to opening up and knowing our Bible. We have this intimidation that it feels like all these people around us know how to do this better than I do. I don't know where these books are. I didn't even know there were individual books in the Bible. I don't know what this is saying. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to remove filters. And what I want to say to you this morning is that if you have ever felt like that, you're not stupid, you are not a bad Christ follower, you are absolutely normal. And I want to encourage you with a quote there in your note sheet by a guy named Chuck Swindoll. The Bible is not a code book reserved for the most advanced scholars. It doesn't contain secret messages hidden on the page. God's word was written for ordinary people. Would you underline that? God's word was written for ordinary people like you and me to help me understand his will and walk in his ways. And so Christ follower, let me be an encouragement to you this morning that the written word of God was given for you. 
And so for us to know what's in it, what we need to do is we need to begin to allow God to do a paradigm shift in our heads. The reason I say that is for so many of us, we feel that we miss the mark. We feel that we're less than. We feel that we fail at this. And the reason is because we're trying to do this on our own. But when it comes to the Christian life, the Lord has given us this gift of community. When it comes to understanding the Bible, learning how to use it, how to interpret it, it is a team sport. And first and foremost, understand that whenever it comes to you opening up the Bible, you listening to the Bible, you coming under a place like this where we are teaching the Bible, that the Lord God himself is with you. You are his temple. You are where he dwells. He is with you to reveal, to teach, to interpret, to be your guide. First and foremost, when it comes to knowing the Bible, we don't do it alone. We do it together through the leadership of God. And so as we open up his word, we can say a beautiful prayer. Father, show me how to read this. Father, show me how to understand this. Show me how to see this. And what's amazing is he will answer that. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be confusion. It doesn't mean there won't be questions. Hear me clearly, when it comes to learning, those are good. Question and confusions are good. They get our gears turning. But understand, you're not left alone. Not only is God physically present with you, but also God has given us some incredible tools we all have access to to better learn and understand what is in the Bible. Let me go through three key tools right now. The first one you're already doing, weekend services. When we do this time of teaching as teaching pastors, we don't do this to try to give you an emotional encouragement. We do this, one, to show you God's vision for your lives, but two, we do this to show you how to better use your Bible. That's actually why we teach for the length that we do. One, Michael and I are just pretty long-winded, so it works out that way. But the other reason is we take that time to show you how do you open it up, how do you study, how do you look. And so for us, that's a big paradigm shift that when we walk into this building, come in with the expectation, I'm going to learn how to use my Bible better. In fact, your note sheets are a great tool for that. For me, when I'm often in the audience, the note sheets often have great points or great uh, verses or great uh, quotes that I want to remember. So rather than trying to like, keep a mess of note sheets, what I do is I take pictures of them. I take pictures of key verses and highlights, and I put them in a specific album in my photo apps, and then I have them as a reference. So the weekend teachers are a tool. Another tool that we have at our disposal is what's called a study Bible. Now, a study Bible is a beautiful edition of a Bible that provides context for what we're reading. It's teaching us cultural and situational context. So, for example, in a study Bible, before each book or letter, so in our example, before the book of Matthew, there will be about three to five pages that provide context. It'll tell us who wrote this or who we think wrote this. It'll tell us who his audience was, where did they live in the world. It'll talk about themes or issues that that audience was dealing with. It'll give us some basic information to give us context heading into that book or letter. Another powerful thing that study Bibles do is that they have in each page what's called footnotes. 
So on the bottom, they give us more insight into cultural differences. They give us more insight into uh, contextual differences. One of my favorite things that footnotes do is that they do cross-referencing for us. What I mean by that is that if somebody says something and that concept or that are quoting a verse that's found somewhere else in Scripture, it'll tell you where it is to show you how the Bible is tied together. One of my favorite things is that if you have a study Bible, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, your footnotes are going to go crazy because it's going to show you how many times Jesus quotes and affirms the teachings of the Old Testament. Now, study Bibles, you can get them physically off Amazon. You can also get them digitally from your app store of choice. They're another great tool. A third great tool to know what's in the Bible is our life groups. Whether you're in a sermon-based life group, whether you're in a special study, even if you're not in a life group in this session, one of the tools that we as a church produce every week for anybody, but specifically for life groups, is what we call the life group study. Every week there is a study available that's about two pages that shares content and context and teaches you how to dig in your word. This week in particular, the study is designed, under, uh, designed to teach us how do, we take, how do we understand verses in context. And the study takes about four of the most popular and most misunderstood Bible verses of all time. And it shows us how do we begin to see it within context. If you're interested in getting the study every week, one of the easiest ways to do it is off the free Rocky Peak app. Under the drop-down, under life groups, you're going to see a place where you can get the study directly on your device. So you see, we have been given the tool to be a team with the Lord and with one another to know his word. But let me encourage you with this. Knowing the word is a marathon, not a sprint. It's not about within 24 hours, I'm not going to know everything about everything. It's about taking one step after another. And hear me clearly on this, each individual step will lead you to a new place of confidence and will lead you to a new understanding of what the Word of God is. So the first step is know the Word. The second step that the Spirit leads us in is treasure the Word. So rhetorically, think about what do you picture in your head when you think of the word treasure? What emotions come to mind? Do people or an institution or objects come to mind? I think regardless of the picture you have, we all could say is treasuring is something deeply, much deeper than merely liking something, right? I've been using these words, a deep reverence for it. Now, when I think of treasure, one object immediately comes to mind before everything else, and I'd love to show that to you today. Ron, can you bring that up for me? Thanks, Ron. So when I think of treasure, to treasure something, this is the first thing that comes to my mind. This is my three-year-old daughter's BB. And I need to tell you, for my daughter Lucy, this is her prized possession. Easily, she loves this more than she loves me. <laughs> now, before you sit there and go, that is her prized possession and you took it from her, it is so important in her life that we had an identical second one made, so she has no idea. But what I mean by that is when I look at my daughter's relationship with her BB, first of all, she takes it everywhere. 
takes it every room in the house. She sleeps with it. She takes it in the car. She takes it to school. But what's interesting in watching her behavior with it, that to her, this isn't a thing or an object. She has a relationship with it. See, she talks to it. She protects it. She often tells me, Daddy, my baby is cold or my baby is hungry. I got to do something about it. We teach our, we've been teaching our kids how to pray, and she'll pray for her BB. She fights for it, and one thing that I see in her is that she also values the security that it brings. She treasures it, but there's kind of a two-way street going on. Now, the reason I share this is we can sit there and go, oh, that's an adorable thing. Your daughter likes her blankie. That's awesome. But something that I'm learning from my daughter is I'm seeing in the purest form what it means to treasure something. And something that the Lord has been filling me with joy is that as I see that example in my three-year-old daughter, I'm realizing that the Lord gives me the opportunity to have a relationship like that with his word. And what a beautiful opportunity that is. See, again, if we look at the model of Jesus, when it came to the word, he treasured the word. He valued everything it represented and the relationship with God that it brought. And we have that very opportunity to change our paradigm from the word being this thing to the word being a treasured part of our lives. See, there in your note sheet, I put two examples from Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. Would you underline that? How I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet, again, underline that word, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And it's extraordinary to me that not just in the life of Jesus, but throughout the entirety of Scripture, when you see anybody talking about or interacting with the written word of God, you never see a boring or a drab attitude, but you see this, that the word of God is something that they treasure. And so for us, that is the opportunity we have, and it is a joyous opportunity. So practically, what does that look like? Well, we're not going to begin to treasure the word of God on our own. That is something that the Lord needs to change in us. And it begins with the first step that we talked about, by beginning to know the word, by beginning to interact with it. But as we interact with the word, the Holy Spirit will begin to give us perspective. And so what I mean by that is he begins to show us what it truly means that this is the word of God. For some of us, think about that. We have heard or used that phrase so many times, the Bible is the word of God that has become numb, hasn't it? And so let's take a deep breath, let's take a step back, and let's understand the magnitude of what that means. The Bible being the word of God means that God Almighty, the King of kings, the one who spoke the universe into creation, the one who parted the Red Sea and re rescued the Israelites, the one who conquered kingdoms, the one who triumphed over sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God's desire is to be known by his people. And so what he has done is he has given us access to his very word in written form. And as I mentioned earlier, the Bible is not like any other written form. It refers to itself as being living and active. It refers to itself as being God-breathed. All of these are descriptions to let us know that within the word of God is the very presence of Jesus himself. And what it means that the Bible is the word of God, that he has given it to us for three core purposes. One, 
God has given us his living word so that we can know who God truly is. Our creator, his character, his heart, his power, his values, his priority. Secondly, he has given us his living and active word so we can better know who we are. That we don't need to be damned because of our sin but we have been restored through the power of Jesus. We have been called sons and daughters. We are now his light. Third, he has given us his word so that we can know our purpose in life, that we have each been called to mission, to be his salt and his light in a world that needs it, that he equips us and gives us what we need to succeed and thrive at it. See, the truth of the matter is when we begin to take a step back and see the word for how it is, see the word for how it describes itself, it changes the game, doesn't it? And as we begin to interact with it with that new paradigm, the Holy Spirit begins to change our hearts and develop a heart that truly treasures the word of God. And so allow the Spirit to change our hearts so we be a people who treasure the word. Third step, is apply the word. Apply the word. At Rocky Peak, we often talk about our deep core value as a church, and we sum it up in two words. We are here to listen and follow. We are here to listen to the Lord's leading and to submit and obey it and take action. And action is a key step because knowledge and knowing isn't enough on its own. Because action is the key ingredient that leads to transformation based on what we know. There in Inoshi, to put another quote by Chuck Swindoll, I repeat, the Bible was not given to satisfy idle curiosity. It was given to transform our lives. Would you underline that? It was given to transform our lives. God's desire is that we probe, observe, examine, evaluate, and determine what's genuine to make a careful decision regarding areas of our lives that need our attention. Far too many people fail to apply the scriptures, which explains why some believers live with a sour attitude. Would you underline that? Why some believers live with a sour attitude even though they've known the Lord for decades. Now, if you've heard me teach when it comes to describing believers with a sour attitude, you know that I use a choice word. I call them curmudgeons. And I've said this before, and I want to say this again because I want to be very clear. Jesus did not die for us to be Christian curmudgeons. And so do you see the tone of this is that applying the word is a joyful act. We don't apply the word because we need to follow these rules or else God won't love us. We don't apply the word because we are so horrible and broken. It is the only way to, quote, keep the evil in check. We apply the word because the joy, the applying the word reminds us of the truth of our identities. We apply the word because of Jesus. We have been transformed. We are now his reflection. We can go into every aspect of our lives and live as he did. And the application of the word is the highway for how I do that. Do you see how it's a beautiful act when it comes to applying? Now hear me clearly on this. There are going to be times in our life when living out the word, applying what it says, is going to be easy and joyful and feel natural. There are going to be times when applying the word to our lives is going to be one of the most difficult things we've ever had to do. 
There are going to be times when the word of God is going to call us to change the status of one of our relationships. There's going to be times when the, Lord, when the word of God is going to call us to repent of a long-standing sin that we've had. There's going to be times when it calls us to take a step of faith and embark in a new future, maybe leaving a career behind, maybe, maybe embracing a level of leadership we never believed we could have. Whatever it may be, keep this in mind, that again, this is a team sport. When it comes to applying the word, God doesn't say, figure out how to do this, let me know how it goes. He is present, he is with you and he is your strength and courage. He's your guide in how to do this. And so practically speaking, how do we apply the word of God? Now there's a lot of great ways we can begin to apply God's word. And so what I want to do is I want to give you just one way that I have found particularly helpful in my life. And hear me, I'm not saying this is the way, this is a way. And so in my life, when it comes to applying the word, I've found it particularly helpful to ask two questions when I'm in a section of scripture. The first question is, what is this section of scripture teaching me, showing me, reminding me about who God is? What is it showing me about his character or his values, his priorities, his power? And then the second question I ask myself is, how, based on that, how do I begin to live out that character in my daily life? And so you see how it keeps it very focused on who God is. And so let me give you an example just in the last week of how I use that as my filter for applying the word. I'm in uh, one of the rooted life groups right now, one of our pilot groups. And in our reading last week, one of the readings we did was we read the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Now briefly, that parable is a story that Jesus teaches of a Jewish man who is robbed, stripped, beat, and left for dead on the side of the road. And what Jesus teaches us is that a couple of other people just walked right by him. And Jesus makes, makes it clear to point out that these were, quote, religious people. And then a Samaritan came upon this man, and his heart went out to him. He had compassion, and so he bandaged his wounds. He took him to a local inn. He provided financially for him to be taken care of. And so what's so radical about this story is Jesus is teaching this to a Jewish audience. Samaritans were considered a mixed race group of people, and because of that, there were amazing hostilities because of racial issues amongst the Jews and the Samaritans. So the fact that Jesus is not not only teaching a story that highlights a Samaritan, but that makes him the hero is extraordinary. So as I read this, the question becomes, what does this teach me about who God is? And there's many things you can pull out of that, but the one thing the Lord led me to is that God is compassionate. And not that just that he cares, but God has compassion for all people. Not just the ones that follow him, but the ones who have declared themselves his enemies, who still love sin. And so I began then thinking, well, how do I reflect that compassion in my life? And often, the beginning of application is internal. What the Lord revealed to my life is my sin, that I am not a compassionate person, that I have a hard time empathizing at times, that I have a hard time caring or emotionally connecting. I'm very logical. I'm very facts and figures, and I've just taken that as that's part of who I am. That's normal. And the Lord is revealing to me that I'm missing out on a key aspect of his character. And so with that, my first application was to repent of that and to ask a deeper question, God, search my heart, because this didn't happen overnight. Why do I lack compassion? What's the root of that? Show me what that is so I can deal with that in you. 
And then the next step of application was, if I'm going to live this out, the first and foremost step for any of us is to live something out in my immediate world. And so for me, that starts with my family. How do I live out as a compassion, like God's value of compassion when it comes to my wife, when it comes to my children, when it comes to my coworkers, when it comes to my neighbors, people I come in contact with every day? So you see, having those two questions for me helps me filter out, okay, focus on God. How do I begin to reflect him more and more through that? And so ultimately, when it comes to these three steps, knowing the word, treasuring the word, applying the word, understand the heart of it, that all of these are steps to know Jesus himself better and to experience more of his transformation. Amen? And I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out, and we're going to close with one final song. And this is a song I particularly like. Some of you might be familiar with it. To some of you, it might feel like a newer song. But this song is specifically declaring the power and the joy that is found in the words of God. And so, Rocky Peak, I'd love to encourage us to make this our prayer, make this our declaration as a church. With that, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that your word transforms us. We thank you that through your word, we find out more about who you truly are, about who we really are, about our mission and our purpose. Thank you that in your word, we find the courage and the strength to do the hard things. We find encouragement and forgiveness for when we fail and when we hurt. Thank you that your word is a beautiful thing and not just a book. And I pray for all of us, Jesus, that this word we heard today not be something, okay, that was good, but something we learn to truly live out and begin to apply. Call us to any specific steps you want us to call us to as your church. Let the song be our declaration. And during the song, as we receive our tithes, our gifts, our offering, Jesus, thank you for the generosity of this church, for the opportunity to fund your movement as we're here to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers. In your son's name, we all declared, amen. Let's stand up together. Power is how it represents the strength of God. See, again, as I've mentioned many times, the beginning of the Bible shows us that God used his words to create all. See, at the end of the Bible, it shows us that when God triumphs over sin, darkness, and the enemy, he doesn't do it with swords or weaponry, but with his word. See, his word transforms and changes us. There's power in his word. And that just expands my view that that is the word we have been given in written form. That within that word, we realize that that power has been given to us. We see that God is present and with us. That God has restored us and gives us what we need to not just survive, but to thrive no matter what our circumstances are. And so my prayer, Rocky Peak, is that as we leave this place, regardless of whether you've had no relationship or a thriving relationship with the word up to this point, let us be a people who take it deeper. Let us be a people who expand our value and reverence and a people who are open to God transforming us through the power of his written word. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, whether you're in the worship center or in the ridge, over to my right along that side of the wall, there's some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry. They're wearing badges to identify themselves. They'd love to pray with you with any needs you may have, but also they'd love to pray celebratory prayers with you. If the Lord is putting a new passion and fire in your life today, go and pray with somebody to celebrate what the Lord is doing. Hey, next week, you gotta be here because like I said, it's gonna be part two. And specifically, as Michael deals with that word righteousness, 
See, I don't know about you, but when I think of righteousness, I often think of like this upper echelon that it's for the super Christ followers and the best of the best. But what we're going to see is that this teaching of Jesus, righteousness is something that we all have access to because of the work of Jesus. That because of Jesus in our lives, you and I can declare ourselves righteous. And I don't want you to miss out. Have a great week, Rocky Peak. We'll see you then.